And birthday time here on Iris, we have several birthdays on this October 24th. Oliver Johnson from Waverly, Jim Hughes from Mason City, Stan Wood from Waterloo, Ruth Barton from Washington, Beverly Davis from Waukee, Frank Compton from Council Bluffs, and Sandra Malone from Woodward. So very happy birthday, Oliver, Jim, Stan, Ruth, Beverly, Frank, and Sandra, and hope you have a wonderful day celebrating this birthday. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television and Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Before we get to today's obituary, I'd like to uh, read uh, this announcement regarding IRIS uh, schedules. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving airtime to some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe-Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you'll hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier, followed by the Dubuque Telegraph-Herald at 2. The Cedar Rapids-Gazette is now on at 3 o'clock each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. At 6 p.m. is a rebroadcast to the Des Moines Register. At 8 o'clock, it's Midweek Shopping Cart. At 9 o'clock, Time Magazine. At 10 p.m., the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up each day with the New York Times at 11. So a great uh, uh, schedule of uh, newspapers and magazines for your listening pleasure. So now it's time for the obituaries in Deanna. Thank you, Pat. Marilyn Drake of Patterson, let's see, Marilyn Maxine Sullivan Drake is her full name, age 85, passed away Saturday, October 21st. She is survived by her husband, Alan, children, Larry Drake of Winterset, Gary Drake of Patterson, Lori Wheeler, married to Rod of St. Charles, and Deborah Memon of Boone, five grandchildren and nine great-grandchildren. A visitation for Marilyn Drake will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Wednesday, October 25th, at Caldwell Parish Funeral Home, Winterset Chapel. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 in the morning on Thursday, October 26th, at the Patterson United Methodist Church, with burial to follow in the Union Chapel Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the Patterson United Methodist Church, and online condolences may be expressed to the family at caldwellparish.com. Beverly Jean Armand Trout Hurley of Altoona um, peaceful, died peacefully um, on October 22, 2023, at the age of 83, surrounded by her loving family at home. Beverly's journey in this world ended after bravely facing a lengthy illness. Her departure leaves a profound void in our lives, but her enduring spirit and the memories we shared will be forever treasured. She was born on February 24, 1940, in Des Moines, grew up in Norwoodville, and attended Saydell High School. She was a cherished daughter of Louise and Everett Kingery. Throughout her life, she touched the hearts of many with her vibrant personality, genuine kindness, and unwavering dedication to family and community. Her professional journey was filled with diverse experiences. She previously worked at Iowa Lutheran Daycare, where she nurtured young hearts with love and care. Later, as a receptionist at Beving Swanson and Forrest Law Firm, she displayed her warm and welcoming nature. 
However, it was her role in the health market at Hy-Vee in Altoona that brought her immense joy. Interacting with people and being an active part of her community filled her days with purpose. Beverly believed in the incredible power of a smile and a few kind words to brighten someone's day, and she lived by that philosophy. Outside of her professional endeavors, Beverly found pure delight in roller skating. Gliding across the rink with grace, she made it seem effortless. It was a pastime that brought her immense joy, and her enduring passion for it will forever be remembered. She was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Bruce Armand Trout, as well as her parents, Louise and Everett Kingry, her brothers, Bobby and Donnie, and her sister, Barb. Although, although they are no longer with us, their memories will forever be cherished. She is survived by her devoted husband, Jim Hurley, and her loving children, Donna, Diane, David, married to Laura, Dean, married to Jessica, and Denny, married to Gail. Beverly is also survived by her dear sister, Susan Vinovich, and brother, Ronnie Kingry. Her legacy continues through her 12 grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren. A visitation to pay respects and celebrate her life will be held at Isles Grandview Park Funeral Home on Thursday, October 26th from 5 to 7 p.m. The funeral service will take place at St. John and Paul Church on Friday, October 27th at 11 o'clock followed by burial at Berwick Cemetery. In honor of her memory, memorial contributions may be made to Every Step Hospice in Des Moines. This organization provided compassionate care and support during her final journey. Okay, Thomas Rusty Moore of Des Moines, age 80, passed away peacefully on Friday, October 20th. He is survived by his wife, Karen Moore, daughter, Tracy, married to Mike Pavon, and other loving relatives. Visitation will be held from 5 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, October 25th at Hamilton's Funeral Home, 605 Lyon Street in Des Moines. Funeral service will begin at 10 o'clock in the morning, Thursday, October 26th, also at Hamilton's, with burial to follow at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Mary E. Mernon of Clive, Iowa, age 89, passed away Thursday, on October 19th, Massive Christian burial will be held on Thursday, October 26th, 10.30 a.m. at St. Francis of Assisi Church, 7075 Ashworth Road in West Des Moines. Interment will be in Storm Lake, Iowa at a later date. A visitation with the family present will be held an hour prior to the Mass from 9.30 to 10.30. Also at the church, please visit caldwellparish.com for a full obituary and to leave a condolence. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan. And we didn't have time uh, before the birthday break for the rest of the Urbandale School Board election article, so I'd like to finish that up now with one more question that the register posed to those candidates. Um, how would you believe the needs of students and staff while complying with the new state law, Senate File 496, that restricts certain books and LGBTQ instruction for certain grades? Steve Ava said school board directors are obligated to adhere to laws and regulations as currently enacted. However, it is important to foster a culture that encourages students and staff to actively engage in the legislative process, ensuring their voices are heard. Cultivating this skill among students is especially valuable now as it equips them for active participation in civic matters as they transition into adulthood. Catherine Hauser said that Senate File 496 demands, although ill-defined by the state authorities, 
have placed boards in a precarious place. The need to protect our staff from state punishment for perceived violations with support for all our students and their best educations is a difficult balance. Added to those concerns is the fact that each district has different issues. Daniel Bartkui said the districts must follow state law. Board members need to ensure state policies align with current legislation. Keeping current and forming new committees within school boards helps secure stability and compliance. Committees also support the close examination of the need for sorry, here we go. Um, for students and staff, including teachers' feedback, academic performance, transparency with parents, and finances and school safety. Josh Van Ruswick said, We must prioritize adherence to the law, even though the legislature's recent directions provide minimal guidance. I believe our interpretation of these new laws should err on the side of the students. It's crucial to maintain schools as safe spaces for students to thrive. While we await further state guidance on interpretation and enforcement, we should fully support the professional integrity and expertise of our teaching staff in selecting age-appropriate materials that are best for their classrooms. My commitment lies in ensuring our students have the best possible educational experience within the bounds of the law. Krista Williams said, It's necessary to comply with the law. However, in order to best serve our students and staff, we must be prudent and not overextend our application beyond the scope of the law. The board and administration <clears throat> excuse me, should seek legal counsel and additional industry opinions when implementing new policies and procedures. The board should keep the focus on supporting our students' and teachers' needs while maintaining compliance. I will advocate for our students and staff so our lawmakers are aware of the impacts the legislation is having on our schools. And finally, Margaret Young says, as a member of the school board, I'm required to uphold all laws of the state, including Senate File 496. Hopefully, the Department of Education will eventually give us better guidance on what this law means and how to implement it. In the meantime, we will strive to create a safe, welcoming, rigorous, relevant, and inclusive learning environment for all our students and to protect our staff from accidentally breaking the law. And the final question to register posed to these candidates. In recent years, Des Moines Metro School Districts have seen their enrollment numbers steadily increase. What can the district and board do to manage future student growth? Steve Avis said that primarily all school boards should work towards attaining favorable teacher-student ratios. This should always be the end game. The district has already recently undergone a demographic study for purposes of determining an efficient allocation of students because of building two new elementary schools. Collaboration with city planners for purposes of contemplating future expansion or contraction within certain areas of the district would help to improve favorable ratios. Daniel Bartke said the funds for districts need to be closely examined and refocused to ensure there are sufficient staff to reach every student. We need to make sure that student-to-teacher ratios are not too great because we do not want teachers to be overwhelmed and students to fall through the cracks. Supporting our teachers with paraprofessionals will enrich the students' learning experience in a dynamic and challenging way. Catherine Halser said that the Urbandale School District is unique in that we are landlocked. Our major issue with the completed new elementaries is to determine programming and resources we can develop to best serve our families, especially considering the two empty elementaries and the upcoming need to move an athletic field from the city-owned Lions Park. 
Josh Van Ryswick said that Urbandale is not in a unique situation as many other districts are faced with limitations around population growth. We must have transparent conversations about the expiration of the Educational Savings Account Program and a potential exodus of students to private schools. This raises some red flags around the balance of high-performing and special-needs students. Our district's mission is to teach and reach all students by prioritizing both academic fundamentals and social-emotional well-being. We can be a beacon of excellence and a safe haven, thus mitigating enrollment decline and ensuring we continue to be a desired community to raise and educate our children. Carissa Williams said that Urbandale schools are in a unique position within the metro with much more limited opportunities for growth via additional housing development due to the size and district borders. Because of this, Urbandale focus for enrollment will more likely center on open enrollment counts. Our district recently implemented additional caps on grade level capacities. This, in conjunction with the movement, closure, and combining of several elementaries in recent years, requires that we work to determine the optimal class size to benefit our students and also provide opportunities for the district to continue to receive open enrollment students. And Margaret Young said, to keep up with growing enrollment, the district must invest both in infrastructure and teachers. Strong public schools build strong communities. I'm grateful for Urbandale's support of bond issues for elementary schools in recent years. Looking ahead, the board will determine new purposes for the Jensen and Rolling Green properties. Most importantly, teachers and staff are our district's greatest resources to continue to provide the top quality education that attracts students from Urbandale and the surrounding community. We must retain our top-tier educators and recruit new talent by offering competitive wages, benefits, ensuring they feel valued and appreciated. And that's a look at the Urbandale School Board District. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Okay, back to some national news. The U.S. warns it will defend the Philippines. This is on page four of the main section. Collisions with Chinese vessels prompt protest. This is from Jim Gomez and Semina Mistrianu from Associated Press. Dateline, Manila, Philippines. The United States renewed a warning Monday that it would defend the Philippines in case of an armed attack under a 1951 treaty after Chinese ships blocked and collided with two Filipino vessels off a contested shoal in the South China Sea. Philippine diplomats summoned a Chinese embassy official in Manila on Monday for a strongly worded protest following Sunday's collisions of Second Thomas Shoal. No injuries were reported but the encounters damaged a Philippine Coast Guard ship and a wooden-hulled supply boat operated by Navy personnel, officials said. President Ferdinand Marcos, Jr. called an emergency meeting with the defense secretary and other top military and security officials to discuss the latest hostilities in the disputed waters. The Philippines and other neighbors of China have resisted Beijing's sweeping territorial claims over virtually the entire South China Sea, and some, like Manila, have sought U.S. military support as incidents multiply. After the meeting, Defense Secretary Gilberto Theodoro blasted China in a news conference for resorting to brute force that he said endangered Filipino crew members and for twisting the facts to conceal its aggression. The Philippine government views the latest aggression by China as a blatant violation of international law, said Todoro. 
China has no legal right or authority to conduct law enforcement operations in our territorial waters and in our exclusive economic zone. Marcos ordered an investigation of the high sea collisions, Tadoro said, but he refused to disclose what steps the Philippine government would take. He said, We are taking these incidents seriously at the highest level of government, adding that the government called for a news conference to provide accurate facts. He said, The Chinese government is deliberately obfuscating the, the truth, the defense chief said. The Philippines also plan uh, to raise its alarm over the Chinese ship's dangerous maneuvers in talks between China and the Association of Southeast Asian Nations on a proposed non-aggression pact, a code of conduct, to prevent a major armed conflict in the South China Sea. Beijing is hosting a three-day negotiation starting Monday, two Philippine officials told the Associated Press on condition of anonymity because of a lack of authority to publicly discuss details of the talks. Teodoro said it was very ironic that China was hosting the, the talks that aimed to prevent major conflicts at sea when it just committed a blatant disregard of international law. The territorial conflicts involving China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Taiwan, and Brunei have long been regarded as a flashpoint in a delicate fault line in the U.S.-China rivalry. About five Chinese Coast Guard ships, eight accompanying vessels, and two Navy ships formed a blockade on Sunday to prevent two Philippine Coast Guard ships and two boats from delivering food and other supplies to Filipino forces stationed at 2nd Thomas Shoal aboard a marooned Navy ship, Philippine Coast Guard Commodore J. Tarilla said. During a standoff, one of the Philippine Coast Guard ships and a supply boat were separately hit by a Chinese Coast Guard ship and another vessel. Only one of the two Filipino boats managed to deliver supplies to Philippine forces. The senior Chinese diplomat, who was summoned by Philippine foreign officials, repeated China's assertion that the Philippine vessels intruded into Chinese territory. China once again urges the Philippines to take seriously China's grave concerns, honor its promise, stop making pro provocations at sea, stop making dangerous moves, stop groundlessly attacking and slandering China, and to tow away the illegally ground warship as soon as possible, said Zhu Ziyang, who was quoted as saying by the Chinese embassy in Manila. He was referring to the Sierra Madre, which serves as Manila's territorial outpost at the Shoal after being deliberately run ground in 1999. The Chinese Coast Guard on Sunday blamed the Philippine vessels for causing the collisions and said the Filipinos were carrying construction materials to strengthen their outpost in the Shoal. The U.S. and other allies expressed alarm over the Chinese action. Washington renewed a warning that it's obligated to defend the Philippines under the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty if Filipino forces, ships, and aircraft come under an armed attack, including those of its Coast Guard, anywhere in the South China Sea. The United States stands with our Philippine allies in the face of the People's Republic of China Coast Guard and maritime malicious, dangerous, and unlawful actions obstructing, on October 22nd, the Philippine resupply mission to 2nd Thomas Shoal said the U.S. State Department in a statement issued by its embassy in Manila. It blamed the dangerous maneuvers by China's ships for the collisions 
and added that they violated international law by intentionally interfering with the Philippine vessel's exercise of high seas freedom of navigation. The State Department also cited a 2016 arbitration ruling that invalidated China's expansive claims to the South China Sea on historical grounds, including in Second Thomas Shoal. Washington lays no claims to the disputed sea, but has deployed forces to patrol the waters to promote freedom of navigation and overflight, moves that have angered Beijing. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Dan, and we'll start our 50-state rundown here. Uh, 50 states, starting with Alabama and Montgomery. Alabama's governor has scheduled a November execution date for an inmate convicted of shooting and killing a man during a 1993 robbery. Governor Kay Ivey set November 16th as a date for Casey A. McWhorter to die by injection. From Anchorage in Alaska, Vic Fisher, the last surviving member of the Alaska Constitutional Convention, has died at age 99. Flagstaff, an Arizona man whose six-year-old son died of starvation after being locked in a tiny closet, has been signed a new trial date. Cochino County Supervisor Court set an April 16th trial date for Anthony Martinez on charges of first-degree murder and child abuse. From Gold in Arkansas, a tip from an inmate and a confession from a suspected killer has led to the closure of a 32-year-old cold case, Arkansas, Arkansas State Police have said. From Fresno, the Chinese owner of an unauthorized Central California lab that fueled conspiracy theories about China and biological weapons has been arrested on charges of not obtaining the proper permits to manufacture tests for COVID-19, pregnancy, and HIV, and mislabeling some of the kits. From Colorado Springs, a Colorado funeral home where 189 decaying bodies were discovered this month appears to have fabricated cremation records and may have given families fake ashes, according to information gathered by Associated Press from customers and crematories. The families that did business with return-to-nature funeral homes fear their loved ones weren't cremated at all, instead could be among the yet unidentified corpses authorities discovered after responding to a report of an abhorrent smell. From East Haven, a three-year-old in Connecticut was grazed by a bullet while lying in bed during a drive-by shooting early Saturday. In Wilmington, Delaware, a vendor who may have given away green iguanas as prizes at the Apple Scrapple Festival in Bridgeville has a Delaware Department of Agriculture concern green iguanas could wreak ecological harm if released and harbor bacteria that can make people sick the department said in a news release. From our nation's capital, a woman said a man in a mask and a hoodie attacked her and stole her dog at gunpoint. From Key West, a decade after swimming the treacherous passage from Cuba to Key West, Diana Nyad returned Sunday to the beach where she completed her epic feat, joining in the release of a sea turtle rehabilitated at the Florida Keys Turtle Hospital. Nyad and her Cuba swimming expedition leader, Bonnie Stoll, helped return Rocky, a 120-pound female green sea turtle, to the Atlantic Ocean at Key West Smathers Beach as they marked the anniversary with her former support team. In Atlanta, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's new health plan for low-income adults has enrolled only 1,343 people through the end of September, about three months after launching. 
In Boise, a diabetic prisoner filed a lawsuit against the State Department of Corrections medical provider, alleging the company refused to give him medical care and insulin, according to the Idaho statesman. From Chicago, after a stopover in the United States that lasted the better part of a century, a Baroque landscape painting, painting that went missing during World War II was returned to Germany on Thursday, the FBI handed over the artwork by 18th century Austrian Johann Franz Nepomuk Lauterer to a German museum representative in a brief ceremony at the German consulate in Chicago where the pastoral piece showing an Italian countryside was on display. And from Indianapolis, one of Indianapolis' most popular charter schools is expanding to create an all-girls STEM-focused K-8 school that will be housed in a former church building. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Out of Hawaii, if I can pronounce all these words, out of Lahaina, for people around the world, the green leaves that sprouted from a scorched 150-year-old banyan tree in the heart of devastated Lahaina symbolized hope following Maui's deadly wildfire this summer. But the fire also nearly wiped out another set of trees, one with a much longer history in Lahaina and a greater significance in Hawaiian culture, breadfruit or ulu, that's U-L-U, which had given sustenance since Polynesian voyagers introduced it to the islands many centuries ago. As Maui recovers, a band of arborists, farmers, and landscapers has set about trying to save Lahaina's ulu, kukui nut, and other culturally important trees. In some cases, digging down to the roots of badly burned specimens to find live tissue that could be used to propagate new shoots. Wow. Out of Davenport, Iowa, an Iowa woman who falsely claimed to have cancer and documented her battle on social media will stay out of prison after a judge gave her probation and a suspended sentence. From Topeka, Kansas, two employees at a Kansas prison were fired and six others were disciplined after accusations that they mocked and failed to help an injured female inmate. Other inmates said the injured inmate spent two hours crawling back to her cell after hurting herself in September. Out of Louisville, Kentucky, school districts were granted nearly a million dollars by the University of Kentucky to expand a reading program that experts have labeled harmful, some states have banned, and the State Department of Education does not support. Out of Lafayette, Louisiana, the interim leader of public schools in a southwest Louisiana parish has been selected to serve as the district's next superintendent. Out of York, Maine, the York Beach Surf Club is facing foreclosure for the second time in two years and with an auction scheduled for the end of the month. Out of Baltimore, Maryland, Baltimore will pay $48 million to three black men who each spent 36 years in prison for a high-profile killing they did not commit after police wrongly arrested them as teenagers, according to an agreement. Out of Longmeadow, Massachusetts, two juveniles have been charged after several slides at a park were doused with acid this summer, and four children were injured the Hampton District Attorney said. From Lansing, Michigan, federal law that prohibits insurers from denying health care based on pre-existing conditions 
or kicking dependents off their parents' coverage until age 26 is now codified separately into Michigan law. Out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Minnesota's budget surplus has grown to a projected $2.4 billion, and that's already fueling the debate over spending and taxes ahead of the 2024 legislative section session. Out of Jackson, Mississippi, incomplete homicide autopsy reports have continued to pile up despite tough on-crime talk by state leaders ahead of the November 7th general election. Out of St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis suspended a youth football team whose coach was shot in front of the players, allegedly by an upset parent, according to a statement provided to the Associated Press. And one more from Billings, Montana, a man was sentenced to 18 months in prison for making racially motivated harassing calls to a black woman working at a church, said the Billings Gazette. Pat. And from Nebraska, a small-town sheriff in Ord, Nebraska, has been charged with filing a fraudulent auto insurance claim to get the repairs to his yellow 2004 Chevrolet Monte Carlo paid for. From Reno in Nevada, a serial bank robber who recently completed a 10-year prison term in California has been sentenced to life behind bars in Nevada as a habitual criminal with a lengthy record that included a brazen scam in which he claimed to be a prison official. From New Hampshire and Portsmouth, the Portsmouth Fire Department recently gifted a 1920 American LaFrance chemical fire truck from Bayberry Vintage Autos in Hampton. Fire Chief William McQuillan said the truck has an estimated value of between forty dollars to $60,000. Cherry Hill, New Jersey, a New Jersey father filed a federal lawsuit to block a state policy aimed at keeping schools from outing transgendered students to their parents. And finally, from Santa Fe, New Mexico, a California research team is conducting a five-year ecological study of six songbird species in northwestern New Mexico oil fields to see how sensory intrusions affect the bird's survival, reproduction, and general health. The Santa Fe, New Mexican says the study by researchers from California Polytech will zero in on the specific impacts of noise and light pollution. Well, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Pat Steele and Deanna Snyder, and it's really been our pleasure to read for you. Now, we will take a short break to allow our next readers, Dale and Doug, to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Dale Finnegan, and Doug Kretzinger. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and the USA Today. And here is Doug with our next article. Thank you, Dale. I'm beginning with uh, the opinion page of uh, USA Today uh, this time. It's Reckless Reporting of Hospital Tragedy Risks Jewish Lives. It's written by Jonathan A. Greenblatt, and he is... CEO and National Director of ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. The blood libel isn't new, but it is terrifying to see it spread across the world in the wake of the Hamas massacre. Its reach expanded and its impact intensified by shoddy news coverage of this crisis. Palestinian terror groups, false accusation that Israeli forces destroyed a hospital in Gaza was instantly covered as fact by journalists. As the unconfirmed allegation was highlighted in headlines, news feeds and push notifications, the reaction was immediate, threatening Jewish communities around the world. This happened even as the allegation was quickly rebutted by the Israeli government, and U.S. sources have said that the missile likely was fired from within Gaza by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, a local terror organization that essentially serves as a junior version of Hamas. As the sun rose, it became clear that, while the misfired missile had claimed casualties, the hospital had not been flattened. Indeed, independent experts assessed that it had been set ablaze by an explosion on the ground. Based on overhead imagery, communications intercept, and open-source data, governmental and non-governmental sources confirmed that the damage likely had been caused by a rocket fired by terrorists inside Gaza, but it was far, far too late. Journalists' knee-jerk assumption that Israel bombed a hospital already had attained escape velocity, traveling around the world and inflaming hatred along the way. It was expected for Arab media to report the lie. Outlets like Al Jazeera has dispensed with any pretense of objectivity. But it was even more damning to see Western media, including New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, jump on the Hamas-driven charge and spread it without the normal processes that ensure the integrity of their reporting. Israel strike kills hundreds in hospital, Palestinians say. Blared a headline in the Times, later changed to, Israelis and Palestinians blame each other for blast at Gaza hospital that killed hundreds. Well, in addition, reputable newspapers such as the Washington Post and news organizations such as the Associated Press and Reuters amplified the accus- ac- accusatory claims. The level of incompetence was staggering and dangerous. In the 24 hours after the incident, the misinformation fueled a wave of anti-Semitic hate. There are almost too many examples to count. A synagogue in Germany was firebombed. Anti-Israeli protesters descended on the U.S. capital and flooded Amman, Jordan, Beirut, Lebanon, and other capitals. This is just the beginning. Some but not all news outlets have backtracked on the claim and corrected the error or the record. Fortunately, no one has been killed as a direct result of this irresponsible coverage. But the odds seem likely that people might be killed if this kind of misreporting reoccurs. How does this happen? When Hamas makes a claim, media outlets must ask hard questions. 
as a terrorist organization that forbids free speech and outlaws open expression, it has a track record of spreading lies and propaganda. Its leaders actively engage in information warfare using all the means at their disposal. For example, rather than cite the Ministry of Health in Gaza as a source, it would be more accurate to reference it as the Hamas Health Ministry because it is an arm of the terrorist government. Outlets also should stop referring to Hamas operatives as fighters or militants. They are unrepentant terrorists whose malevolence is confirmed by more than 1,400 body bags in Israel, let alone the over 200 hostages ranging from infants to the elderly held against their will in the Gaza Strip. Hamas controls flow of information out of Gaza. But the problem is not just the official Hamas line. Western news agencies cannot operate bureaus in Gaza as they do in Israel and other democracies around the world. Reporters are not allowed to roam around and pursue stories at will. Instead, Hamas restricts who can report on the situation and who cannot. It is time for journalists to acknowledge their accountability in this crisis. Irresponsible reporting can enable the spread of a modern-day blood libel. The blood libel is an ancient charge, a pernicious myth that Jewish people intentionally kill non-Jews for any number of reasons. An ancient form of fake news, the blood libel fueled anti-Semitic programs in Europe and was later imported to the Middle East. Today, we see the blood libel in full effect when the world recklessly blames Israel for any number of crimes. It proliferates when, in this delicate moment, major media outlets fail to apply the normal checks and balances used to minimize misinformation. It has always been dangerous, but it is even more explosive in the information age because Jews around the world will be the victims. As the Hamas war rages and tensions rise, media resources, or rather media services around the world must take responsibility and prevent false information from spreading and fanning the flames of hate. Dale? The second opinion says, uh, is uh, titled, Civil Forfeiture Can Help Agencies Hurt the Innocent. And this is written by Stephanie Wilson, who is a nursing student who lives in Taylor, Michigan. Single moms like me sometimes must multitask to make things work. I had an especially hectic morning on June 24, 2019, but was managing fine until sheriff's deputies stopped me on my way to nursing school in Wayne County, Michigan. They did not arrest me, accuse me of wrongdoing, or issue a citation. Yet they seized my car and left me stranded 15 miles from home. What followed was more than two years of delay with no chance to see a judge. The Wayne County Attorney's Office gave me only one option to reclaim my vehicle, settle out of court and pay $1,800 plus towing and storage fees. Many people face ultimatums like this. Just in Wayne County during a recent two-year span, law enforcement agencies seized more than 2,600 vehicles and ransomed them back to their owners for more than $1.2 million. Similar money-making schemes occur nationwide. Law enforcement agencies grab cash, cars, and other valuables and then stall to weaken resistance. The result can be lopsided settlements for the government, but the U.S. Supreme Court has a chance 
to restore balance. Cully v. Marshall, scheduled for oral arguments October 30th, involves innocent vehicle owners from Alabama. The police seized their cars and blocked them from seeing a judge for several months. My case provides hope for a favorable ruling. The ordeal started after I dropped off my son at school. I was preparing to head out the door for my own school when a friend called and asked for a ride to his mother's house. I picked him up at a Detroit, Detroit gas station and told him I could drive him where he needed to go after my class. But I never made it that far. Deputies in an unmarked car stopped us almost immediately. They accused my friend, the father of my child, of possessing drugs. A search produced no illegal substances, so the police released him with no arrest. They accused me of nothing. I do not do drugs and have never helped anyone buy, sell, or conceal drugs. My only offense, one deputy told me, was being in the, quote, wrong neighborhood. As punishment, the police took my car and everything inside it, including my son's booster seat and soccer gear. Then they drove off, leaving me on a street they had just told me was dangerous. They would not even point me to the nearest bus stop. Figure it out, one deputy said. Friends and family were skeptical when I explained what happened. My dad thought the whole thing must be a misunderstanding. The police do not take property for no reason, he assured me. Yet this is too often the reality of a law enforcement maneuver called civil forfeiture. Arrest and prosecution are optional. Using civil forfeiture, agencies can take and keep property based on mere speculation of criminal activity. Bureaucratic hassle helps them get the results they want. As weeks turn into months, property owners grow weary. I know the pain firsthand. While my car sat in an impound lot, I could not drive my son to school or take him to medical appointments. I could not get myself to classes at Wayne County Community College, where I was studying nursing. I missed an entire semester. At one point, I rented a U-Haul truck, the cheapest transportation I could find. Other times, I begged family and friends for rides. The more I suffered, the more the county gained leverage. But rather than settle, I joined other Michigan property owners in a federal lawsuit like the Alabama case. The Institute for Justice, a public interest law firm, represents us. One victory came in 2021, when I finally got my car back, albeit with rotted tires and rust. A second victory came on August 31st when the 6th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals held that Wayne County must grant pretrial hearings within two weeks of seizure. Other victories could come as the case proceeds in federal district court. The Supreme Court provides another avenue for hope. If the Alabama vehicle owners prevail, the result could be prompt post-seizure hearings in all civil forfeiture proceedings nationwide. I attached my name to a friend of the court brief in Cully because the facts hit so close to home. Civil forfeiture has many built-in problems. 
Allowing law enforcement agencies to use delay as a weapon is just the beginning. If the government wants to take and keep property, the least it can do is give people access to neutral decision makers. Life is already hectic enough without the loss of due process. And again, that opinion was written by Stephanie Wilson, a nursing student who lives in Taylor, Michigan. Okay, I'm going to read here, uh, Dale, the opinion on the uh, Des Moines Register editorial that I see in front of me here. It says, time for shakeup on city council. And it's for today. It says, Des Moines City Council elections November 7 will produce an unusual amount of turnover. Des Moines residents have the opportunity to drastically and abruptly alter how the council approaches its work. They should accept the invitation. The Des Moines area reigns as the fastest growing major Midwest metro, a rightful point of pride. But the city at its heart faces daunting challenges. From the need for affordable housing across all price ranges to a public transit system confronting an existential funding crisis to broad swaths of residents who lack trust in the police department. And while identity politics has its drawbacks, the city deserves a council that looks more like the generational and racial and ethnic makeup of its residents and will press harder for changes that represent the views of all who live here. As usual, three of six city council, six council seats are being contested, as well as the mayor's office. Also on the ballot, a partial term for a vacant seat representing Northwest Des Moines. Mayor Frank County is retiring after 20 years in office. If either of the two council members who are candidates, Josh Mandelbaum or Connie Boson, takes county's place, another seat will open to be filled by appointment or special election 2024. And here is four pictures on here and four brief articles about each. At large, Carl Voss has earned re-election. Carl Voss has come pleading his first full term on the city council and his record and commitment warrant a return to office. The co-founder of the Des Moines Bicycle Collective brings welcome personal experience to discussions about how to get people where they need and want to go in the metro. He takes seriously the council's stated goal of eliminating traffic deaths in the city and embraces the status quo challenging policies that could be required to meet it, such as speed limits below 20 miles per hour in school zones. The binder of information he brought to an interview with registered journalists reflects his research on how other cities tackle vexing problems. He supports adding a board to review the Des Moines Police Department actions, but, but respects the nuance that will be necessary for its format to comply with state law. Challenger A.G. Drew acknowledges that he's been learning as he goes during this campaign. At present, he cannot match Voss' command of the issues and potential solutions, but his insistence on involvement in city affairs would be welcomed. Voss has done a good job in his role representing all Des Moines residents, and they should grant him a second term. And we have Ward 2. Chelsea Lepley has been involved in local and state politics for years, practical work that gives her perspective on the sometimes subtle dynamics that determine whether policies succeed or fail. An example, she hypothesized that she was the only person who wasn't a developer or a city employee to attend all the meetings that led up to the overhaul of zoning rules in 2019. She said she believes the city has a responsibility to take actions to protect residents' rights and endorses tools such as Community Review Board for Police, noting that part of everybody, part of everybody feeling safe is not feeling targeted over policed. 
Incumbent Linda Westergaard was first elected to represent this area in 2015. On some topics, such as affordable housing and, and houselessness, Westergaard has seemed to appreciate the scope of, and urgency of problems in Des Moines. But on other topics, she insists, over loud complaints, that everything is fine. This is most evident regarding the Des Moines Police, the department accounting for the city budget's largest single chunk by far. Westergaard has gone out of her way to dismiss or downplay concerns about officers' conduct and flatly rejects some proposals for additional transparency and accountability. Of the two candidates, Lepley has the better conception of the inv innovation and oversight people need from the council. And Jason Ward 4, Southeast Des Moines, Jason Bennell, merits election over incumbent Joe Gatto. Joe Gatto has won three elections to represent this part of the city. He's been a forceful advocate to better ensure programs and infrastructure projects that have helped other areas are brought to the south and east sides as well. And his pragmatism on the budget and other topics has a role on the council. But challenger Jason Bennell has run an impressive campaign that offers bigger aspirations for what Des Moines can be without sacrifice of pragmatism. Excuse me. <clears throat> Among his beliefs, Des Moines can be better with a new mechanism for independent review of police actions. You shouldn't need to have a car to have a job in the Des Moines area. Regional Transit Authority service and funding should reflect that. It's worth considering whether some money spent on policing might better support other priorities. And also, every dollar spent prosecuting a person who's homeless for violating some statute is much better spent just keeping them in a place where they're safe. That was his quote. Candidate Justin Torres does not share Bennell's assessment of the city's responsibility to unhoused persons to those who allege mistreatment by the police. Bennell makes a strong case that he can do a better job than Gatto in presenting all of the residents of this diverse ward. And Ward 1, Northwest Des Moines, Bob, rather Rob Barron, is thoughtful, principled, and prepared for a new role. This selection is for a two-year term in a seat opened by Councilwoman Andera Shoemaker's resignation. Of the seven candidates who filed, Rob Barron, Chris Coleman, Kathy Hellstrom, and Kimberly Strope Bogus all make credible cases for election. Any would be a good addition, but Barron is the best choice. He cast numerous hard votes during the COVID-19 pandemic as a member of the Des Moines School Board, which clashed with state leaders over policy. His remarks at that time reflected the potential downsides of any choice the board might make. The thoughtfulness that informed those decisions should, would serve him well on the city council. Of the potential for conflicts with state officials at the city level, he told the register, quote, there's a difference between picking a fight and taking on a fight, end quote. Coleman retired from a long city council career four years ago and would bring smart, competent representation for the ward. Strope Bogus, who has served on the city's parks board, has a deep street-level understanding of city issues, and um, she currently noted that a board to review police activity would need a strictly defined purpose. Helstern similarly demonstrates knowledge and passion for making political differences in neighbors' lives. The remaining candidates, Dennis McAuliffe, R.J. Miller, and Rose Marie Smith, suffer by comparison in this deep, knowledgeable field. 
but it's Barron who stands out for his record of conscientious community service. Dale? We have a little bit of time for sports now. I'm mostly going to tell you what's on TV. In college football tonight, you can watch New Mexico State at Louisiana Tech. That'll be at 6 p.m. Central Time on CBSSN. And at 6.30 p.m. tonight on ESPNU, you can see Liberty play Western Kentucky in college football. There is a final Game 7 in the National League Championship Series tonight, Major League Baseball, at 7 p.m. Central Time on TBS. And that game is between Arizona and Philadelphia. Uh, And it looks like it's in Philadelphia. That is the... uh, winner-takes-all game there for baseball. In NBA basketball, the L.A. Lakers will be at Denver at 6.30 p.m. tonight. You can watch that on TNT. And at 9 p.m. Central Time, you can watch Phoenix at Golden State, also on TNT. There are a couple NHL hockey games you could watch tonight as well at 5 p.m. on ESPN. You can see Toronto at at Washington, and at 7.30 p.m., also on ESPN, Boston versus Chicago in Chicago. That was the NHL hockey games. And with that, I'm going to move over to Dear Abby. The headline today reads, Family Can't Stomach Dad's Kitchen Creations. There are a couple letters. The first says, Dear Abby, my husband loves cooking for the family. Unfortunately, he's a horrible cook. My kids hate what he prepares, so most of the food goes in the trash. I have had many conversations with him about this, begging him not to do it and telling him if he wants to cook, he should make something for himself. His reply is always, I'm not forcing you guys to eat my food. You're welcome to eat something else. But when we do that, he sulks and ruins everyone's day, so we end up giving in. I don't know how to get through to him about this. Signed, Tastes Bad in the East. Dear Tastes Bad, You can talk till you're blue in the face, and your husband still won't get the message because he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't care about the waste. Of course, you and the kids could explain exactly what you don't like about what he has prepared and offer suggestions about the seasoning, etc., which might help him. And perhaps you could all cook together from time to time. In the future, when your children achieve independence and the family gathers, each family member may want to bring their food with them. However, while they live under your roof, they'll have to accept what their father insists on giving them. A second letter says, Dear Abby, my son is getting married in Mexico in six months. I would like to take a special friend with me as my plus one. My wife has dementia. It is quite severe, and she has been in a care facility for two years. She no longer recognizes anyone, including me. Would it be wrong to take my lady friend to Mexico? We haven't been intimate yet, but romance at the beach in Mexico is very possible. What do I do? Signed, Uncertain in Iowa. Dear Uncertain, Your son's wedding is not the time to surprise anyone with this lady's presence. Depending on how large your family is and how close you all are, some people may already be aware that you're involved with someone and why. 
but ask your son and his fiancée if bringing her would be disruptive and gracefully base your decision on their response. A wedding is supposed to be about the bride and groom on their special day with no distractions. A final letter says, Dear Abby, I heard my old high school boyfriend was arrested. It made the news. I hadn't seen or heard from him in more than a decade. While I'm relieved that I dodged a bullet, I am happily married to someone else now, I feel terrible for his mom. We are still friends on social media and keep up with each other. Should I reach out to her or should I keep it to myself? Signed, Hesitant in Texas. Dear Hesitant, because you and this woman have a relationship that extended beyond the one you and her son had, by all means reach out. Tell her you heard what happened and you care about her and want to be supportive. She may or may not contact you, but she'll know you care about her. Knowing someone cares could make all the difference. And we do have a couple announcements, well, an announcement today. Um, at the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is at 3 p.m. each day. At 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear the Midweek Shopping Cart. 9 p.m., it's Time Magazine. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier, you heard Deanna Snyder and Pat Steele. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings come from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.